Heather, that was awesome. <laughs> that those reflections, that that was, uh, um, and uh, we're going very much in a similar direction in, in terms of reflections on the word today. Um, Lord, uh, you are the one we want teaching us today. Um, grant that uh, I could get out of the way and that you could take me and through me bring more than I'm able to say of myself. Um, bring to us an awareness of that hope, that peace, that presence that, that even in the midst of whatever brokenness is around us, enables us to know our hope and hold steady to that, anchored from above. Anoint your word. Visit us as a people. In Jesus' name. So, the uh, trying to think of a title um, for this, something like preparing ourselves for God's visitation. And in doing that, to understand that everything we think we understand is going to be overthrown and transcended in that visitation when it comes. And it depends on having a heart expecting, holding steady, um, seeking him, and a readiness to, to go to a different place and realize that he's going to open a door and he's going to, in his presence, reveal things that, that we just can't fathom yet, that are so far beyond what we can take a hold of. And I'd like to link that theme um, to Advent, the, the time, the period. So um, the idea of Advent as a, as a season when you have these reflections, you know, coming up to Christmas, um, it's tied to the idea of a liturgical calendar and that through the year, right, there are certain times when we remember the, the key events of our faith. And probably the most important of these are, you know, Advent and Easter. Um, Advent and Christmas where we're kind of following Israel as they're waiting in expectation for the one that's going to come. 
And you can see here the link already to that theme um, that, I, that I mentioned. Um, he didn't come in the way they were expecting him to come. And they were looking for one thing, and because they weren't ready to have their preconceived ideas, you know, overthrown, uh, they missed him when he came. So many did. And Easter, of course, is the time when we remember the work that was done and what was done for us by God. And again, that so overthrew expectations, right? And so here to get, to get a sense of the disconnect, um, you know, think, so here's the, the broader context of scripture. The God who called this whole universe into existence by his word. The God who had a plan for who we are and who we were to be. The God who then disclosed this plan in the law, the Torah. And the Torah gave in bits and pieces that living plan that then is made flesh. But this God of all glory is the one that we set ourselves against. He's the one we're at war with in our sin and our rebellion. And when you see it in the broader horizon, think of how foolish this is, right? That we're in rebellion, that we're at odds with God. And, you know, what would a reasonable expectation be? It would be that, that when he comes in his visitation, it's going to be fire. It's going to be our undoing. Right? Who can stand before his presence? And here's how he overthrows. He, he comes, is made flesh, and we do come into conflict with him. But what happens? He yields himself up for us instead of that fire he says okay the plan as Paul points out in Romans um, not one aspect of the law was to be violated so what does God do the Torah itself is put to death. And in that dying, a way is made for us to be living. A new way, a way of renewal 
that he makes for us so that now we who were at odds with God can be at peace with God. And that's the theme that I want to explore. This, this idea of Advent as anticipating a coming, a key event, and one that all history has been pointing toward. Right? That's what we remember in this season. And we, you know, in the Advent period, kind of reflect on the ways God announced himself, say, through the prophets, with his promises, um, the way he announced himself with the angels who, you know, go to the lowly, the shepherds, and tell them, you know what just happened. And he also announced it to the Gentiles, the wise men, you know, coming from a foreign land with a different religion. Kind of showing the range of his purpose. So here's the theme, this advent, this expectation, this looking for the coming, the presence of God. But how this appearing is going to be an overthrowing. And that means we're going to have to be ready. We're going to have to be open. We're going to have to allow all in us that, that blocks God and is contrary to God, we're going to have to have that overthrown. It's going to be burnt away. So, the, the broader passage of scripture that I'm going to initially read, and then I want to go over different themes in relation to it, um, it's from Isaiah chapter 9, and I'll read verses 1 through 7. Um, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. These were two of the tribes of Israel. Um, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the days of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, 
everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord God, the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Now, this word of Isaiah was written centuries before Jesus came. And what's neat, you know, just as, as if to, to bear witness to God's preservation of his word over time, you know, you, if you go to Israel, they have this museum where the scrolls found in Dead Sea are. And one of the best preserved of all of those scrolls is at the center of that museum, and it's this giant circle where they have the Isaiah scroll. And that word that they found from a time period, you know, when Israel was scattered and they took the scriptures and they put them in those clay pots to preserve them. That word, that promise that we read here is preserved perfectly over time. Giving us an awareness that this was not adjusted as a word to what happened this announced it before, and it announced it before so we could have a confidence, so we could know that when God tells us something, when God announces it, he will fulfill it. We're to have our hearts ready. We're to rest on his word, take hold of that word, be anchored in that word, and look for the fulfillment of his promise. And what is the promise for? What is the promise of? It's of this, of a people who are in darkness. And you see the words here that, that there was gloom. There was darkness. This people they should rejoice. Now, as in Heather's message on God's peace, right? They're to do that in the midst of this because of what's promised to them. You know, in the midst of the gloom, in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of the struggles. And here, it's a people that have had to do battle, right? It speaks of the blood-soiled clothes. But all of that is going to one day be as nothing, be put away and burnt because of the government of this one who's coming. Right? 
For to us a child is born, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, that word, peace, and Prince of Peace, um, I want to reflect on that a little. Because actually it's, it's one of those themes, you know, there are, certain, there are certain things in scripture that, you know, where God has really spoken to you. And it's like I, I get a glimpse of it and then forget it. And having the occasion to reflect on this again, it, it makes you excited when you reflect on God's shalom, God's peace. Um, because it's not like a, a worldly peace. And I'll, you know, we'll go to some scriptures on that in just a second. But I wanted to, because it was, it's actually, you know, not bad as kind of a, uh, an introductory overview uh, on Shalom in Wikipedia. And just wanted to mention some things from that. So Shalom, the, the Hebrew word, it can refer to peace between two, and you know, it could be two individuals, it could be two people, or it could be peace between humanity and God. So all of that is covered by shalom. But it doesn't just mean that. It also means the well-being of a people, their flourishing, and it could apply to an individual. So we cannot have peace as an individual, right? To have sort of a, a troubled soul, a troubled heart, um, it can refer to a people that, that have trouble with one another, right? That are at odds with one another. And in Hebrew, this word, for shalom, um, as is often the case with Hebrew words, they're built up of roots, which initially were consonants. And actually, when they, when they initially wrote Hebrew, they didn't put vowels in. They would just put the consonants. And the vowels, you know, were, were seen to be tied to breath, to spirit. Vowels make the consonants alive in the reading. So they had a whole philosophy about the relationship between the consonants and the vowels and, you know, how the, the consonants are like the body, the letter, and the vowels were like the spirit, the breath, which animates the, the word. But this word shalom, um, it has different ways vowels can be combined with it. So the same um, which makes for shalom is also hishtalem, it was worth it, shulam, it was paid for, meshalam, it was paid for in advance, mushlam, to be perfect, shalem, to be whole. All of these things are tied to that root 
and are sort of evoked as part of the broader meaning of God's peace. And notice especially these to be paid for, to be atoned for, um, to, to have a reckoning settled, all of that being a part of it. Um, and they point out also, and I want to um, go to uh, that passage in Matthew chapter 10, that Jesus often uses the greeting, peace be unto you, um, which is, um, so, uh, where do I have it here? Um, uh, I want to, this one part I want it to, okay. Um, so, still today in Israel, um, although partly based on biblical uses of this, um, Shalom Aleichem is uh, a greeting that's made, um, and it's like um, well-being or peace be upon you. And then a person responds, Aleichem Shalom, which is, you know, and also upon you. And they point out in this context that, you know, the, the words, so, you know, we have the New Testament in, in Greek, uh, Koine Greek. Uh, which was like the everyday spoken version of, of the Greek. But um, the words, when Jesus says, for example, peace be unto you, um, that's, a, that's a translation of shalom aleichem. And what I want to look at here is a little on how Jesus speaks about this peace. Um, so... In Matthew 10, the context for this is Jesus um, calls 12 that are going to be his apostles, those he sends, and he sends them out and he gives them instructions, right? So, um, say starting in verse 5, um, these 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message. The king of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Do not get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts. No bag for the journey or extra shirt or sandals or staff. For the worker is worth his keep. Whatever town or village you enter, search there for some worthy person and stay at their house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. So this is the shalom aleikum. If the home is deserving, let your peace, that shalom, rest there. Rest on it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. Now, here's one of the one of the questions. What? So this is you know it's a it's a a role for words and greetings that is quite a bit unlike how we normally think about words and greetings. 
right? The, the way he's speaking about it here, it's like a, it's like a gift that's actually given and rests upon the people that they give this greeting to. But notice it's kind of like up to them as to whether they receive it or not. And if they don't, it returns back to the apostles. Right? Now, in effect, um, God is giving us this greeting. Right? He's He's granting us this peace, and the apostles were an extension of him, right? And he's giving them instructions on how to share this word, right? Which is like a good news. It's a, it's a power of God that can come upon a household that they give this greeting to. And... We see this in God's announcements. His announcements have this character. Right? When, when he gives that promise through Isaiah, um, it's, it's like a greeting. It's something that comes as a gift. But then, are we the household that will receive it? Or are we not going to receive it and then it returns, as it were, without bearing its fruit? Now, within this broader theme of a word coming, right? And it's like a, a literal giving of a gift. It's not an ordinary word. It's not just like the things we say to each other, right? It's a power. There's a glory present with that, with that word, that greeting, that peace that's granted, that's almost like a literal giving of something. Um, I want to go to the, the passage in, um, in Mark um, on coming of a word and it'll be the parable of the sower and the seed. So that's like uh, the, the, the glory of the, <laughs> you know, the, the coming word. And, and actually, you know, it's uh, kind of the good, the bad <laughs> Um, it's also a forewarning because there is going to be a strange, dangerous side to this. Um, so, um, I'm, I'm going to um, start in, in Mark 4, chapter 1. So again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large. <clears throat> the crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat in it, and um, sat in it out on the lake, while all the people 
were along the shore at the water's edge. He taught them many things by parables, and in his teaching he said, Listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plant was scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among the thorns, which grew up and choked the plants, so that they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on the good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60, some 100 times. And Jesus said, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Now, first, a, a question. Um, why did Jesus teach in parables? Now, I'll, I'll give you a, a, a common answer. Um, and part of my reason for setting it up you know, kind of rhetorically with this, with this question is, I want to go over these these ways that what we think is going on isn't exactly what's going on. Um, so here's the common account given of why he taught in parables, because he he wanted everybody to be able to understand it. Right, that the parables were like simple illustrations. And then when you heard the parable, the lesson would be really clear to you. So it was sort of like teaching a complicated thing in a simple way so everyone can understand it. Right? Um, now, here's, here's the thing. And notice what he says. He who has ears to hear, let him like there's a challenge there. You're not automatically going to get it. Now, if it's just to make it simple, right? Like, is that the, it seems there's something going on about how this word is received. And what I want to highlight here now is kind of the more you go into this parable, the, the stranger it gets. Um, so, when he was alone, the twelve and others around him asked him about the parable. He told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables, so that they may be ever seeing, but never perceiving, and ever hearing, but never understanding, otherwise they might turn and be forgiven. Now think about that. That seems to be a very strange reason for teaching in parables. Right? 
it's not so it's easier to understand. But it's because it, it like sets up an obstacle. And then he gives them an interpretation. Then Jesus said to them, don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? So right after he says, to you is given the secret of the kingdom of heaven. And you don't get this one? How are you going to get any of the ones I'm teaching? He says, the farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like seeds sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they fall away. Still others, like seeds sown among the thorns, hear the word. But the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seeds sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop, some 30, some 60, some 100 times what was sown. So, first, how is this the secret of the kingdom of heaven? Notice that what the parable is about is kind of, in some ways, it's like to the house Shalom Aleichem is spoken to, right? And it's telling us what would it mean to receive this gift rather than reject it and have it returned to the one who gave it. And he's highlighting here what's involved in receiving that gift, right? That word... Um, it involves this, this taking a hold of it, but then it's, it's like not just the quick taking a hold of it, right? It's the taking a hold of it and seeking it and studying it and struggling and, you know, taking hold of it, recognizing the glory of the gift. So later he'll speak about, you know, uh, the kingdom of heaven is like someone, you know, who, who found a treasure buried and sells everything that they have to get the field so they can dig up that treasure and make it their own, right? So it's highlighting there's this role for the disciple in receiving that word like a seed so it's planted, and it takes root, and that gift bears the fruit it's supposed to. Now, I mentioned the more you get into it, so it seems, okay, now with the interpretation, we have the privilege through the word of being there with the disciples who get the interpretation, but I want to go a little bit further into the strange explanation Jesus gives. First, after he gives the parable, 
you know, he says, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. And then he says to the disciples, to them the secret of the kingdom of heaven is given. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving, ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. Now, that really is a strange word, right? But that is actually a quote from Isaiah. And I want to go back to the context where that word was quoted by Jesus. And it's when Isaiah is receiving his call, his commission from God. And it, you know, I think it's one of the, the really powerful passages in Scripture. But it's in Isaiah chapter 6. And it's when God's word comes to Isaiah. And I want you to, to look at how Isaiah is receiving that word when it comes. But then also the nature of the call on Isaiah. So in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, a kind of angel, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of glory. Now, Notice this part, and this is a theme you, you see in Scripture again and again. It's when, you know, kind of um, we, we're normally not aware of our brokenness, aware of our sin, aware of how we're set against God. But when God discloses himself, and there the glory and the righteousness shines. Kind of we see ourselves in the contrast. And this response of Isaiah, you know, woe is me. I'm an unclean person among a broken, sinful people. And... This fire is going to be my end, right? Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, 
This has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. He said, Go and tell this people, Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. So this is the passage that Jesus is making reference to. And notice the context of it. The context is where the glory of God is revealed. God himself is made present. And Isaiah becomes aware of his brokenness and separation from God. And in this, he cries out. And then by God's action, God doesn't say, oh, no, you're a holy person. That's why I called you. Right? There's a work of God that's needed to take that person who rightly saw himself and make him into the kind of vessel that God can use. So God takes of the fire from the altar and touches his tongue and you see there the burning away of the parts in Isaiah that make him unfit as a vessel for God. Now notice that theme because that is sort of a crucial one when God announces his coming and when God calls us to prepare. It's the recognition that his coming is going to be two things. It's going to be the most wonderful glory, the presence of that which we can't imagine, but it's going to also be a judgment. And it's going to be burning away all that's in us that's contrary to God. And from the flesh's perspective, this coming is the end. It's judgment. It's our undoing. And from the spiritual person's perspective, it's our renewal. It's our freedom from sin. It's the putting to death of all in us that hinders God and that's contrary to God. And it's both of these things at the same time. And these two sides, the fire and the burning away and the need for the vessel receiving that greeting, God's peace, that household is going to be undone. It's going to be burnt through to the core so that that renewal can take place, which is the growth of that seed that comes. And then that house is a house of good soil. 
that rightly receives that greeting of peace that came upon the house. So then I said, Isaiah is continuing after he's told that, because, you know, again, this is like a, a strange thing that it's going to, that this word he's supposed to be preaching, you know, like makes the people callous and prepares them for judgment, right? Then I said, for how long, Lord? And he answered, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. That's judgment. That's fire. Right? That's wrath. And here's the part that, you know, it's also a word where he's, he's teaching us not just about this first announcement, but he's teaching us about the way we're to receive this word, the way the word, that greeting, that gift comes to us. Um, so if there isn't a readiness to die, to take up the cross, to have all contrary to him burnt away, to have all the old things that stand in opposition to God cleared away and made as nothing by this word that's preached, then the word returns to the one who gave it. So it highlights the need for a readiness and he says, and though a tenth remain in the land. So even if a tithe remains, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. Now, notice what this is. So you get this image, right, of kind of a whole land burnt away, but this seed, you know, so initially you think of a tiny seed, but the contrast here is that tiny seed turns out to be that very deep root that once it's all burnt away and it's planted, then a new life and a new hope is going to spring. And in the next chapter, chapter 7, it's where you have this word that comes on, behold, a virgin's going to conceive and bear a child, and they're going to call his name Emmanuel, God with us. And it's two chapters later that you have that word, that we were, that we read at the outset, right, on that promise of a child and of God's peace coming to a house, right? So here's the image, the, the backdrop. Jesus is 
teaching about a sower and a seed. And it comes in parables. And when he speaks about the parables, he sees them as having an effect like this word that Isaiah was called to preach. And the effect is going to be, it, it kind of brings a judgment, right? But that judgment, when it sort of burns away everything, there's something deep that's been planted so that, say in the image of the sower and the seed, you know, we're not like the ones that cultivate all the weeds around us, the worldly things that choke the word, right? But all of that's torn out. All of that's burnt away. And this thing that's planted is going to be, as Jesus says in another parable, it's going to be like a giant tree in which everything takes shelter, right? So you get these contrasting images, but the part that I'm really wanting to highlight and explore here is the way this coming of the word, this gift, is tied to expectation, to a recognition of what's given, appreciation that it also involves a judgment, as it were, a burning away. It requires that we be willing to die to all the old ways. And the expectation that God's then going to make complete and full that work that he began. You know, and Paul directly says this, right? The kind of this expectation that he will bring to completion what he's begun, and it's going to have its proper effect in transforming us. Now, the last part in this message that I want to go to, um, so we, we looked in Matthew how Jesus was initially teaching to the apostles, you know, to to give their peace, you know, their shalom, and how it was like a, a literal thing. You know, it's, it's passed to a house, but it can then go back to them. Um, before Jesus left, so he came, and he told us that he's going to leave now, um, but we're to wait for a gift. And what's interesting is the same language of shalom aleikum, um, of a peace given. Jesus says to us, to his disciples, before he leaves, and it highlights also how we're to be ready for his coming, which is both a coming into our lives as individuals, 
And that's not thing, something that just happens once when we first receive him, right? It's kind of a, a continual work of dying to the old and looking in expectation for God's peace, God's fullness to come on us. Um, but there's a special clarification of the nature of that peace and how it rests on us. And for that, I want to turn to John chapter 14. And the context here, um, you know, Jesus uh, uh, is, this is just before his passion and death. Um, And he's announcing to them, you know, that he's going to be leaving them. But it's clear in a lot of what the disciples ask and how they respond that they're not quite getting it, right? Um, But they would later, you know, they would afterward understand. And part of the reason was that the full conditions for understanding were not yet given. And one of Jesus's central departing gifts is that path to understanding his word, to fully appreciating the gift that he's granted. So after highlighting the the need to obey his teachings, um, he says in verse 25, John 14, 25, all this I have spoken while still with you, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. This is that passing of the peace, of the gift. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be be afraid. And then he says, you heard me say, I am going away, and I am coming back to you. If you loved me, you'd be glad that I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. I've told you now before it happens, so when it does happen, you will believe. I will not say much more to you, for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold over me, but he comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father, and do exactly what my father has commanded me. And then here, while he's with them, he says, come now, let us leave. So I want you to think about this context. Um, you know, if you, if you go to these passages where Jesus is teaching them just before he leaves, it's clear they keep asking questions, but they don't quite get it, right? They, they don't quite understand what's going on. And... It's, it's clear that there's a gift that they're going to receive, that when they receive it, 
this gift is going to enable them to remember the words that Jesus taught and more so to understand their meaning, to see their significance. And this is that peace, that word that is passed to a household, that word that is given to the disciples, and that word that is promised to us, right? It's living. And we see here, this is the Holy Spirit. This is what Scripture speaks of as the earnest of our inheritance. So the earnest was, you know, for a child of a household, um, even while the parent was still living, they could be given a part of their inheritance. Not the complete inheritance, but they could be given a part of the inheritance. And this presence of God among us is that first taste of God's fellowship, of our peace with him, that one day when we see him face to face, we're going to have in all its glory and all its fullness. But we are given the presence now. And this is us no longer at odds with God. This is the fire from the altar touching our lips and making us pure for a work that we could never perform by ourselves unless God takes us and burns away that old and renews us so that we can be those vessels of his like Isaiah was made a vessel of his. And he's preparing us. So this peace, this, is, this word, you have to prepare your heart for it. You have to be ready to be overthrown by it. You have to be renewed by it. But this gift is not just like an ordinary word. This is a power that comes upon us, that enables us, that to do things that if we would just seek his word and understand its character, you know, the glory, the excitement that goes with this word, to what degree can we glimpse it, right? Can we understand you know, think if, if we would somehow take a hold of the littlest part of it, what God would do and could do among us. And just like he announced his coming and gave record of it so that we can see he fulfills his promises, know that when he speaks that word, and when he gives us that peace, not as the world gives it, but in this special way that empowers us, then he's going to make good the promise in it. And making that good involves 
the burning away of the old, the renewal in the new, but from the perspective of the new person that we want to be, right? Those are two sides of the exact same thing. From the redeemed perspective, the cross, the burning away, the fire, that strange word about the purpose, right, of the work and the word when it comes. We get, we'll get excite, as excited about that as we do about the other fullness because it means all those things in us that we had no hope of being redeemed, all those things in us that, you know, are ugly and that we're ashamed of and stand contrary to God and make us unable to do the work and be the kind of person that God wants us to be, he's going to burn that away. That's a central part of the hope. The flesh sees that as a bad thing. But for us, that is blessing. That's sanctification. That's being made something that we couldn't be otherwise by ourselves. So, in this time of Advent, when we remember Christmas and we look back on the announcement of Christ's coming, but the world wants to distort it with all of the, you know, make it about presents and, you know, jolly people in red suits and stuff like that. Um, you remember the glory of what's announced and the promise that's given. And the lesson that he's given us on being that good soil and on the glory of that gift when God's shalom, God's peace is spoken on you and on your house and what that gift means and if we can get excited, right, and recognize the glory of the time, then, you know, all the little reminders that we have around us, they can stir up that excitement and that commitment and that recognition, that hope that his word is not going to return void because you're that, that good soil and you're not going to shy away from that unexpected work. Instead, be ready. Look for him. He's coming. Thank you, Lord, for your word, the announcement of your coming, that it's not just a thing past. Thank you for the word of your peace. Guide us to receive it as a people and each of us in that work and that word that you have for us to be those vessels you want to make us. In your name, Lord, we pray.